The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Today we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 to 15, and from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. For now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And now Galatians 3, 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Bob and Mandy, for the scripture reading this morning. <clears throat> My name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church. And uh, just before we uh, go to the scripture and look at it, what we are going to be studying this morning, I want to just update the church family about uh, how things are progressing for this coming September. And uh, a task force has been formed that are studying COVID-19 and the uh, different uh, rules that the government is placing for uh, churches. Um, I can tell you a few things. The, the first thing is, is that um, September 13th is the Sunday that we hope to uh, resume a uh, bigger crowd in this room, and uh, we will be letting you know as to how to do that. It'll be by sign-up, 
and we'll be uh, controlling how people uh, move in the building and, and all the rules that will be around that because we do want to resume uh, more people gathering for worship and the word. <clears throat> also, we, we need you to know that we're, we're going to continue with online uh, services uh, forever. Amen. <laughs> we're not going to be stopping that um, because we know that there'll be a, a graduated return to, to these kinds of uh, public services. So, so uh, in fact, there's a team that's working on a studio in one of the spare offices so that we are more set up to uh, do quality online recording and online live streaming. So uh, continue to pray for us. Uh, Tuesday evening, the board of our church meets, and we'll be considering more of these things. Let's, uh, let's go to prayer just before we listen to God's word. And Father, now, O oh Lord, that as we have the opportunity to open up the scriptures again, I ask you to open up my mouth and open up our hearts and minds to what you have to say. Holy Spirit, we recognize that whenever we do this, we, we are needing your presence, your power to face what we sometimes don't want to face in our lives or to take steps of obedience that are difficult or to uh, take away the darkness of misunderstanding that sometimes settles upon our minds. Lord, we pray that you'd bring light into our minds and our path and enable us to follow you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we have been studying the book of Genesis uh, in the last uh, several weeks and studying the life of Joseph. And even as Betty's uh, testimony reminded us, there are the main plots and the subplots in our lives. <clears throat> and we've been looking at the main plot of Genesis, which has to do with the preservation of this holy seed, the promise made to Abraham, that is going to follow itself all the way through the patriarchs and on down throughout Old Testament history to the time of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And uh, we distinguish between main plot and subplot. The main plot, of course, of anything is the main sequence of events in a story, and the subplot is, is um, sorry, the main, <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to get Shelly if you could run this for me because I'm having trouble. Um, the main plot is the sequence of events. The, the subplot is all the secondary lines of action that happen in the story. And um, we've seen that uh, throughout the time of the patriarchs that has been Abraham and Isaac and Joseph, uh, Jacob. And we have seen that really... They're, they're, they're the main storyline, and it's all about how does it lead to Jesus Christ. So understanding the Bible is key to what we want to uh, be all about wherever we are in Scripture. And um, that's really what, uh, what Bible study should be about, what expository preaching, inductive Bible study. We should be looking for the big idea of what the Holy Spirit's intent, the author's intent is, but then we recognize that underneath that, there's all kinds of smaller stories and subplots. Take, for example, if you were studying the Gospel of Mark. Let's say that you are, as a family, reading through the Gospel of Mark. And as you read, you come to the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, verse 30. And as you're reading that, uh, you, you maybe borrow from the other Gospels because that story is in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And you find out that in the Gospel of John that there's a little boy that offers his lunch, five loaves and two fish, and you, you insert him into the story with your children or your, your Bible study in studying the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you were to take that story and extract from it that Jesus wants us to share, that Jesus wants us to be generous, you would not be wrong in extracting that lesson from that text. But is that the main idea of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6? Is it the main idea of the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000? Is it the author's intent, or even more so, is it the Holy Spirit's intent? Is that the big idea? I think we all know that that's not the big idea. In fact, just a chapter-by-chapter -chapter examination of the Gospel of Mark would convince you that to share about a story of sharing and generosity would miss the point. For in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 1, Jesus is revealed to be the one who has power over the demons and the devil and unclean spirits. In chapter 1 as well, diseases are, are vanished at the touch of Jesus. In chapter 2, we read about how Jesus heals a paralytic and physical infirmities are no match to him. He is Lord over the Sabbath. He's even Lord over the law of Moses, he, he demonstrates. Chapter 3, he heals a, a man who has a deformed hand. He's Lord over creation. In chapter 4, he's Lord over the wind and the waves. I love that verse where, where the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? In chapter 5, we read about a man who's healed of a demon, a woman who's healed of bleeding, and Jairus' daughter who is raised from the dead. Jesus is even Lord of death and life. And then we get to chapter 6, and we see this feeding of the 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And then later on, he walks on the water, by the way suspending gravity, suspending natural laws. And can we come through that six chapters and arrive at that miracle and then say, well, it's about being a sharing person in general. No, we can't. We can't. We cannot do that. We cannot skip over the authority and, 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 and lordship of Jesus and just draw a, a morality lesson about sharing. Now, I say all of that to remind us that as we've been going through the book of Genesis, we've been trying to be faithful to telling the big idea, the big story of redemptive history. But along the way, we've seen all these subplots, these smaller stories, and each one of them are meant to feed into the big story. They're meant to give the context. They're meant to amplify the place of the big story. And so today, we're going to be doing that very thing. We're going to be looking at a subplot. And I feel it's right that we look at this subplot and we talk about Joseph as an example of forgiveness in the family because indeed that's what this scripture is teaching. And it's not the main plot, it's not the big idea, but we'd be remiss to not look at how incredibly uh, true it is that this is an example of forgiveness. So today we're going to be talking as you could see from the children's moment, uh, we're going to be talking about forgiveness in the family and uh, how God calls us to restore relationships that have been broken by sin. And in fact, as soon as I announce that theme now, I'm guessing that several of you have relational 
tensions that are coming into your mind. As soon as I announce that we're going to be talking about restoring broken relationships through forgiveness and repentance and healing, I think probably several of you are thinking about real case examples in your family. It could be a person that's a relative, a friend. It could be that it's uh, parents who have an estranged son or daughter. It could be a business relationship that went bad. It could be a sibling that you got along with fine until they got married. It could be uh, a brother or sister, a friend. There's so many scenarios of what this could apply to. And let's trust that the Holy Spirit today, even as I share the word and as we look at the text, that God the Spirit will take us further into this. Maybe further down the road toward reconciliation. I have been at funerals and weddings alike, where I've been conducting funerals and weddings alike, and there has had to be ushers that have kept family members separate. How deep the waters go of bitterness and envy and strife that needs the grace of forgiveness. This is not something that uh, is... is uh, Theory. This is something that we need to put into practice. So let's take a look, and we're going to start by examining the pathway to reconciliation. And along the pathway to reconciliation, there are eight steps or milestones, if you want, that I think are coming right out of the text. And I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. And the first one is that we see an emotional breakthrough. Chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, make everyone get out from here. And so here we see this emotional breakthrough that happened. Sometimes before forgiveness is going to be offered, someone has to have an emotional breakthrough. Sometimes you just can't carry the burden of guilt any longer. Sometimes a relationship has just become too volatile. Sometimes people feel desperately alone and lonely. Sometimes someone dies and awakens the family to what's really important. But oftentimes, before forgiveness is extended and reconciliation is gained, there is a breakthrough of emotional sorts. In this case, in the case of J Joseph, we read at the end of chapter 44, the speech by Judah. And in chapter 45, it just was enough. He couldn't hear it any longer. He had to speak. Secondly, there's a private exchange that takes place often. In, in this verse, make everyone go out for me, and so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Unfortunately, when someone is offended, they often are talking with everyone else except the person that they should be talking to with whom they have the offense. When we have offenses in our relationships, we should confine our talk to the very person that we have the offense with, like a surgeon who is going into a body after the cancer and trying not to disrupt all the tissue around that surgery, we should be looking at forgiveness this way, offenses this way. We should not be broadcasting what has been done. We should be confining our conversation to the ones that have been at the wrong. We see also in this scripture a drawing near. In verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
When Joseph re-engaged in the relationship, we see a drawing near that is an absolutely honest and open heart. We do not see him sweeping the sin of his brothers under the rug. He's not letting them off somehow. He is wanting real relationship restored. And so he acknowledged their sin. He extended forgiveness. And do you know something? It doesn't really matter where it begins. When a relationship is broken, it does not matter whether the offended party or the one who offended begins the relationship of reconciliation. In fact, Jesus states that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled. You're not remembering that you have something against your brother. Jesus says, your brother's got something against you. Go and be reconciled. doesn't matter where it begins because the heart of a true forgiver is the heart of the one who wants to see reconciliation take place, a drawing near. And then there's a new perspective. In verses 5 to 8, it says this. Now do not be distressed, Joseph says. Do not be angry with yourselves, Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. Three times, three times, Joseph reminds them, it was God who sent me here. That's a brand new perspective on this offense. And oftentimes before forgiveness is going to be extended to someone who's offended you, you're going to have to have the light of God's divine light shed upon the path and bring a new perspective of the things that have caused stumbling. And so Joseph recognizes that. And that's humanly impossible, but with God all things are possible. Have you ever had a situation in your life where you, you actually had a completely radically different view of an offense that took place in the past And God has brought his light upon it and shown you something. It's going to require that you look at your life differently and the lives of those that have offended you. You're going to have to see that the sovereign Lord, God, is doing something in you that wouldn't have been going on if that hadn't happened. And he's doing something in them. He's doing something in your family. He's doing something in the relationship. You have to have a divine perspective if you're going to get through to what forgiveness's goal is. And so that's what happened with Joseph. And then that enabled next an offer of fresh grace and hope to enter in. In verse 9, come down to me, do not tarry, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, you'll come be near me, I'll provide for you, and so on. I mean, this is a brand new future. This is a brand new scenario. This family that was estranged, that thought the son was dead, this family is now going to be living together in the same land and and seeing grace fulfilled. There's a book by the name of Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. A man by the name of Miroslav Volf wrote this book. And I want him to explain what he says about this. He says this, At its best, forgiveness hopes for more. In general, when we give, we hope that gifts will in some way be reciprocated and that the exchange of gifts will give birth to friendship, even to mutual delight. 
Forgiveness is born on the wings of a similar hope. A wrongdoing has made a serious dent in a relationship, maybe even totaled it. We forgive in hope that it will elicit repentance and restitution and that forgiveness will mend and restore the relationship. Forgiveness should clear the path for a fresh hope to exist in a relationship where you thought, there's no hope for me ever talking to that person again. And uh, there may be consequences, but there can still be forgiveness and reconciliation. Next, we see that there is a cathartic experience in this experience of Joseph's. The road to reconciliation often has a cathartic experience in the life of people involved. It sounds, maybe that's sounding a little too clinical for a sermon, but the, the word catharsis is defined as the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. And so we can see, for example, in the scriptures when David played the harp for King Saul, it, it soothed his soul, it said. It, it was a catharsis. It was a cathartic experience. And in Genesis 45, the passage that was read, we read in verse 14 that Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. Benjamin wept upon his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. This event in verses 14 and 15, this event would not be something that was to be witnessed by anybody else. This was a bunch of blubbering brothers rebonding. This was not something of a spectator thing. This was something that was absolutely genuine and intimate and real. None of them as well, I think, needed to feel the need to wipe away the tears and straighten up and say, how about those jets? Or something stupid like that. This This was real masculinity at play. For real men do cry, when they are being reconciled to their brothers. We see in this example a beautiful reunion of something that was broken and is now rebonded. And so, yeah, it's a cathartic experience, and that's good, releasing what has been repressed. And then lastly, in these eight stones on the path to Reconciliation, there is sincere conversation. Verse 15, after that, his brothers talked with him. After that, his brothers talked with him. Isn't that the case always, that once the fear is gone and suspicion, talking starts? We are social beings. We're born for a relationship. We have an inner desire to be known and to know And so once you clear away the rubble of fears, talking starts, real, genuine talk. We're not told in the scriptures what they talked about, who talked, but but I think, I think there was some real confession going on. I think there was some real honest sharing going on. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we can ask them. But those are the eight steps of the path of reconciliation. Now let's move on, and let's talk about the sin, the actual sin that needed forgiving. 
And uh, I don't want to just skip over this. We're going back several chapters to what happened. I understand that the sin was the betrayal of a brother. They sold him into slavery. I mean, how can you sell a brother to slavery? I get that. That's the, that's the, the surface of the sin. But I want to look at the root of the sin. What was it, really, the sin that needed forgiving? It was not simply a covetousness. For example, was it just simply coveting the privileged position that, that Joseph had with his father Jacob? Was it coveting those incredible dreams that he had that he said were from God where we are all bowing down to him? Is it, is it just coveting his position as the favored one? No, I think if we look deeper, it's more than just a coveting. I think we would call it envy. And there's a difference between covetousness and envy. And I'm going to borrow again from a book of a guy that writes about this very thing. His name is Cornelius Plantinga and Jr. And he says this. He says, what an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. <clears throat> to covet is to want something, somebody else's good so strong that one is tempted to steal it but to envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it the coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods the envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied envy moreover carries overtones of personal resentment an envier resents not somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. And I submit to you, I think it was envy that was at the root of the brother's sins against Joseph. A bitterness of heart that actually wished cruelty and evil upon their brother. What we must be careful of, I think, in this is that envy could actually be slipping into our life in various ways. Envy is listed among the seven deadly sins, but in our culture, I think envy can actually be esteemed in a twisted kind of way. John Walton writes, our advertising does not teach that envy is good, but it does teach that it's good to be envied. <laughs> Isn't it? That's the way our advertising goes. We can fall prey to having things or being able to do things that really we know are going to get the attention of our neighbor or our friends. It's not just having a car. It's having this car. It's not just being able to do these things. It's, it's being able to do these things with this kind of flair. Isn't that what Facebook is often about, is this, this putting it out there of what my life is all about and somehow wanting them to, oh, I wish I was like that. And so we understand the root of the sin of envy, but can we actually be playing with it? And we also not need to be careful in not excusing our envy. When we're on the other side of this and and perhaps we have an attitude about someone because they're excessive in some area. We've seen that, oh, excessive. And so we end up having an attitude about somebody. It can come out very subtly or it can come out very 
very, very clearly. Joseph's brothers could have excused themselves thinking, well, he deserves what he got. Maybe he's being arrogant. But they had no right to be the judge and jury, even if they were right in their judgment of Joseph, which they weren't. So we can express our envy and our resentment in obvious ways. We can do put-downs and insults and ridicule. And that's obvious. Something's up with that guy. He's, he's got an attitude. But then we can come at it more subtly. And we can say, do things like, we can express concern with somebody else about their lack of performance or their, their, their way of living. We can, we can pity their naivety. We can smirk at somebody's blunders. We can mock somebody's idiosyncrasies. And in so doing, what are we doing? Are, we have to be examining our hearts. Are we in so doing somehow devaluing them and therefore valuing us, promoting ourselves more? And at the root of that is not just a simple pride, but an actually envy pride. Well, it might be rooted in envy. Let's move on to talk about the forgiveness that sought restoration. And this is a closer look at the heart of God. Much has been written about true and false forgiveness, and I'm sure you've had the bookstores are full of the ideas that come out. The, the, the websites are filled with what true and false forgiveness might look like. And, and frankly, much, much of what you will read about on the Internet about forgiveness is bogus, false. It's not God's way of forgiving and so, forgive, for example, let me share with you some of them. So here's one. Forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. Really? Is that what forgiveness is all about? Here's another one. Forgiveness is about the other per- isn't about the other person. It's about you. Really? What about this one? Sometimes we forgive not because we're wrong, but because staying angry robs us of happiness. And then the, another one we have is, Forgive others not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. Well, what's at the root of all these kinds of forgiveness? (laughs) It's you. It's your pleasure, your happiness, your peace, your ability to move on. These are all wrong, of course. And they they, they really betray the reality The wrong focus, not founded upon the cross of Jesus. We forgive because God forgave us. That's the theology of forgiveness. And so, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Paul says in Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Jesus on the cross in Luke 23, 34 said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. You see, at the heart of forgiveness, true forgiveness, is crucified. Is, is somebody, somebody must be crucified when there is true forgiveness. And um, we see that demonstrated on the cross of Jesus. Forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness costs Forgiveness is counterintuitive. Nancy Guthrie, in a book she's written called Hearing Jesus Speak Into Your Sorrow, writes this. She says, forgiveness is choosing to absorb the pain and pay the debt yourself 
that you are rightfully owed, asking God to do a work of grace and quench the fiery anger in your heart. That's a good statement. It's recognizing that, that I'm angry. It's recognizing I'm hurt. It's recognizing that, that I am going to really be paying that debt that they had against me. I'm going to be absorbing it in myself. And I'm going to leave that not somehow making them pay it back forever, holding it over them. That would be dangerous. This act of absorbing the pain of forgiveness does not mean we live as martyrs. The martyr complex is very much like the victim complex, the poor me attitude. I've borne the brunt of injustice, but I keep on loving. Like that's, that's not Jesus. I am so grateful that God does not forgive me that way. He's not marked me with an X saying, oh yeah, watch out for that guy. It's not the way of Jesus. Again, let's go back to Miroslav Volf. He says this. When we say, I will forgive, but I will not forget, we do two things. First, the gift of forgiveness is given in the dark wrapping paper of warning, even threat. We keep score. A second, it places on the offender an indelible sign that reads, evildoer. Once an offender, always an offender. Memory nails offenders' identities unalterably to their misdeeds. That's false forgiveness. That's not cross forgiveness. That's not Christ forgiveness. And it's not the kind that we want to offer. And God can enable us to get beyond it. God can. What is impossible with man is not impossible with God. Let's talk about then the final point of the message this morning, and that is the restoration that requires a response. And take a look, a closer look at the goal that we have in relationships when forgiveness is being offered. There's a difference between repentance and restitution. We need to talk about that today. And I believe that Joseph's story, again, is a great starting point to demonstrate that. I think it's quite clear in the scripture, in the narrative, that Joseph's heart was already clean and forgiving of his brothers before they stood before him during that famine. He already had a heart of love and grace. He had dealt with it before God. God had taken him through the discipleship of prison and other injustices that had taught his heart a really incredibly important lesson on forgiveness. And so when he saw his brother standing before him, I believe he already had a predisposition of being reconciled to them. But he also understood that in order for the relationship to be restored, it had to be a two-way street. It wasn't just him forgiving. It was them taking ownership and responding. And so he goes into this charade that we've been reading about for the last few weeks. It's an important thing to teach children that repentance is different than restitution. You don't have to use the words. But it's important for us to teach children, young children, to recognize when they've done something wrong, not just ignore it. Because little children grow up into adults, and adults sometimes can have this habitual 
pattern of learning to deal with their sins, their offenses against others by simply paying it back. Paying it back in good behavior. Paying it back in doing penance. Paying it back somehow. That's restitution. And, and restitution can happen without any change of heart. It happens in the courts of law every week, I'm sure. Someone who is offended is, is given a, a punishment, sometimes community service maybe, or paying back the victim's family in some way. But the heart's not touched in restitution necessarily. That requires repentance. To make restitution, the offending party tries to compensate for the offense through a payback method. It's an eye-for-an-eye method, approach to resolving our offenses. It's not God's grace way of restoration. It, in fact, betrays true forgiveness and true repentance. Repentance requires a change of heart, an ownership of the cause of hurt, an ownership of what I did, an ownership of how it affected you. That is repentance. I might make restitution, indeed. That might be part of it. But the focus is not the restitution. The focus is on removing the sin and restoring the relationship. That's biblical forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So I'm not sure where you have been in your mind during this message and where we, we've opened this same, maybe a raw theme of forgiveness and reconciliation. And again, as I began the sermon, I was talking about how perhaps some of you have, have had raw hurt still unresolved. It's not been forgiven. People have remained separate, haven't talked for years. There's things like that that go on in families and in friendships. It, it should not be when Jesus Christ is Lord and he can be, he can be the glue, he can be the healing balm that can, can bring re restoration in relationships. And I'm wondering if the Holy Spirit today is asking you to take one step further into that. Whether you're on the offending or the offended side of the equation, or maybe that's not even clear because there's two different stories is the Holy Spirit asking you to take one step further down that path of reconciliation. You know, I think that Jesus, um, when he calls us, he says, take up your cross and follow me. He's asking us to pick up a cross and die. Die to the right of always being treated fairly and justly. Die to the right of having someone who's wronged you come humbly and own it and say, I'm sorry. You take up your cross and you follow him. And wherever there's forgiveness, someone must be crucified. I think that what, I think there's three reasons why we don't pick up the cross and follow Jesus in a restoring of a relationship when they're broken. I think there's three reasons why we don't forgive or why we don't receive forgiveness. The first one is, is plain old laziness. I think it's easier to leave the cross just standing in the corner. I think we're lazy. We can be lazy when it comes to things that we leave undone and put off. And God the Spirit might be saying to you, stop being lazy on this. Get your hands dirty. Get messy. 
seek reconciliation. A second reason why we leave this undone and leave the cross in the corner maybe is because we're afraid. We're afraid that we might get hurt all over again. We're afraid that we're just going to make it worse, whatever. Fears not to be the way of motivating you to do what God wants you to do. And then thirdly, I think it's because we're proud. We think that we know how to handle these things better than God. Or, or we just think that, that we don't have blind spots, that we see ourselves perfectly clearly. We see the situation of the offense perfectly clearly. We understand the motives of that person perfectly clearly. That is arrogance. You don't understand it perfectly. You've got blind spots, just like all of us do. Is there a new perspective that God could give to you on whatever it is that has brought to mind today? May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, as we have opened up your word and, and um, looked at the life and the family of Joseph, we see in, the, in this subplot story an incredible example of how Forgiveness took place, and not only forgiveness, but how the relationship was restored and uh, reciprocated. And, and Lord, um, we need those kinds of stories in Scripture because there's, a sure, there's sure a lot of dysfunctional families and unresolved conflicts. And, and Father, our lives are often a mess of, of relationships that have been hurt and never been resolved. God, we pray that your Spirit might lead us to, uh, to take us the steps that you've, you've put on our hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.